The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that portion of scripture which we read at the beginning in the book of the prophet Ezekiel in the 36th chapter and the 16th verse, the 16th verse in the 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, and then follows the entire section which we read at the beginning. But I want this evening particularly to concentrate on this introductory statement, this 16th verse, and uh, through it and by means of it, have a general look with you also at the entire statement of the whole paragraph which we have already read together. Now, the first thing that strikes anybody who is at all familiar with the Bible is that this is a phrase which is found in many places in the Bible. Indeed, it is one of the most characteristic uh, statements of phrases, uh, especially of the prophecies which are recorded in the Old Testament. It's just a typical illustration. It's the kind of thing that not only Ezekiel keeps on saying, but uh, Jeremiah says it, Isaiah says it, they all say it. The word of the Lord came unto me, say. And then there follows the message. Now, I want to call attention to this, because it seems to me that here we have presented to us very clearly and very plainly what is the message of this entire book? Now, the context is always interesting. The children of Israel at this point, when this word of God came to Ezekiel, were not only in trouble, but they were in captivity. Ezekiel is one of those prophets who writes in the midst of captivity. Now, the other, some of the other prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they wrote before the captivity, while the children of Israel were still in their land. But by this time, by the time this man Ezekiel came, the calamity had uh, happened. Nemesis had descended upon them. Their great city was a mess of rubble, and they had been carried away as captives by the Chaldeans to the land of Babylon. Now, there they were, I say, and they're having time thus in misery and in captivity to think and to consider their whole situation. And looking back, this is what they found. Things had been all right with them for a while, They'd been put into their land by God, and they had experienced blessing and prosperity. But here they are now in captivity. What's the cause of all this? Well, they look back across the history, and this is what they saw. Things began to go wrong. And in that situation, they were addressed by a number of people. There were men whom they called prophets. They were teachers who claimed that they were profound students of affairs and of history, 
and that they, as the result of their study and their meditations, had arrived at certain conclusions and were able to offer advice to the people. And they had been speaking, and they had been addressing the people. And their message was, in effect, that though things were not all right, uh, well, there was nothing very serious, nothing to be alarmed about at any rate, and that if they made a slight modification here and there, all would be well with them. But on the other hand, there were certain men who claimed that they had been specially called and sent by God. Men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others whose works are recorded in this Old Testament canon, they had come and they had said something very different indeed. They had said that the situation was desperately serious. And that unless the nation repented in sackcloth and ashes, that calamity was bound to come. They're all typified in a sense by a phrase that was uttered by the prophet Joel. Rend your hearts and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. The situation, said these men, is so desperate, it's so urgent that nothing but a most essential renovation, a complete humbling before God and a turning back to him, can save the position. And as you know, there was a great quarrel going on between these two types. These first people, the so-called false prophets, ridiculed these latter, the true prophets. And they comforted the people, and the people sat at ease in Zion. They rested on their lees, as the picturesque expression puts it. And they went on enjoying themselves, some of them lying on their ivory beds and indulging in luxury and living for sheer pleasure and drink and dancing and things of that kind. And so the position continued to degenerate from bad to worse. Until at last, the predictions of the two prophets were very literally fulfilled, and the Chaldean host came and attacked and demolished the city, as I say, and carried away the people captive into the land of Babylon. Now that was the thing which they saw when they looked back, and here they are now, in this land of Babylon, by strange waters, down and out as it were, and finished. And what hope is there for them? What can they do? They don't want to hear the easy, smooth things of the false prophets any longer. At last they'd seen through them. But what can they do? They're weak, they're helpless. They don't know what to do nor where to turn. How can they ever get back to their land? How can they ever get back to their great city of Jerusalem? What hope is there for them as a people and as a nation? Here they are disgraced, humbled and humiliated and in shame in the sight of all the nations. What hope is there? What can be done? And there is none apart from the words of our text. But this is how it came. Here is a man amongst them called Ezekiel. And suddenly to him comes the word of the Lord. This wasn't the first time it came. You read his whole book. You'll find how it came repeatedly. He was with them. He was one of the captives. He sat down amongst them. 
In their misery and in their shame, he sat down amongst them by the waters of Babylon. But into the utter hopelessness of it all, there came to him this word of the Lord, opening a door, giving a hope, showing a way of deliverance. Now, I am calling your attention to all this. Because, I say, it is so typical and characteristic of the whole of the biblical message. That is precisely what the Bible does at all times and in all generations. That is what it's doing this very evening. Because surely our situation is so strangely analogous to that of the children of Israel in the helplessness and the hopelessness of their captivity there in Babylon. Isn't the position exactly the same? Look at the history. You've got an exact repetition of what I've just been saying. Final disaster has not overtaken us nor our world, but we're in trouble. We're in difficulties. And the whole question is as, as to what is the matter. And again, you see the same old division as before. You pick up your newspapers, and you look at their front pages, and you scarcely know what to think nor what to say. Is the world in trouble or isn't it? Look at the latest news. Look at the things that have given prominence. What is the situation of the world this evening? Is, is there anything critical at all? Well, there can't be. Because the great thing is some marriage that's to take place this week. And the excitement. And the show. And the fuss. And the pomp. There can't be anything wrong with the world. Why, everything's wonderful. Let's have a good time. You see what I mean. You see the confusion. The general impression given is, no, no, there's nothing very serious about it all. And here are these vices that are speaking to the modern men. He's got a feeling that there's something wrong. And yet he listens to these various vices. I've mentioned one, the vice that comes, the word that comes with his newspaper. And he finds it very difficult to know whether he really ought to take things seriously or not. So much is given to sheer pleasure to that which is animal, to sheer sport and things like that. That's given such prominence, he says it can't be serious. That's one vice that comes. Oh, there are many other vices. The vice comes to him, the word comes to him through the wireless. He takes its programs and he says, well now let me see how much is there here which is serious. Very little. Most of it's sheer entertainment. Very funny. We are told to laugh the whole time and to have a marvelous, wonderful time together. He says there can't be anything very serious after all. Why should he be troubled about it? That's another word that comes. Oh, and there are many other words. There's the word of the politician. Confused again, uncertain, not seeming to know which way to turn or what to do. Confusion all along the line. The word of the philosophers, the words of the poet, 
And all of them, I say, when put together, they somehow leave you with this impression that while there is a problem and while there is trouble, there's nothing very desperate here. But above all, I say, the tragedy is there is no line given. There is no way opened. There seems to be no door opening before us. What can we expect? Have we any prospect of anything better? Now, I'm just putting these questions to you. As you listen to the various voices that come from various directions to you as a typical modern person, what do you make of it all? Isn't it all confusion? Isn't it a repetition of this old story? At ease in Zion. People still thinking mainly of having their supposed good time. Spending all their money. Getting things while they've got it and so on. Living for the moment, hand to mouth, day to day. Isn't that the picture? Thus I say we are confronted by this baffling, confusing situation. And were it not that still we have this word from the Lord, there would be no hope at all. But here it still is. Here is still the message that keeps on coming. As it did then. As it has always done. And as it is still doing. But the tragedy is that the vast majority of people seem to be heedless and unconcerned about this. They feel it's irrelevant. They feel it's far away. The thing they say to do is, is to follow the news. The visit of these men from Russia and so on. This is the relevant thing. Here it is on one hand and on the other. The Bible, oh, well, an old book, old-fashioned, out of date. Obviously, it's got nothing to say to us now. And they're looking in every direction except in this direction, exactly as the children of Israel did. Well, but the question is, why do they do that? Why should one listen to the Bible? Why should one listen to this particular word? Why are we met together to consider it this evening? Are we doing something wise or are we being foolish? Are we simply perpetuating some ancient custom? Or is this the most relevant word coming to mankind in its confusion this very night? Well, now then, another way of putting all that is just to put it like this. That nothing surely is more important for us than our whole approach to this book. So many people are not Christian and are in trouble and are missing the glories of this salvation because their whole fundamental initial approach is wrong. Their whole attitude to this word is wrong. Well, what therefore is of importance as we come to consider it? Well, let me note some of these things that are suggested here on the surface this evening. The first thing we have for regarding this as special and unique is this. That it is a revelation from God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. Now, that's the fundamental reason for listening to this and paying attention to this. It's in a different category from everything else. It's no part of the preaching of the gospel to disparage everything else in and of itself. But we are entitled to say this, that everything else apart from this is always human. It's the word of man. 
It's man's thought. It's man's understanding. It's man's idea. It's what a man thinks. But the uniqueness of this lies in the fact that it is a revelation from God. It is God himself speaking. And my dear good friends, if it's of interest to you, that's my only reason for being a preacher. I wouldn't insult you by standing in front of you and simply giving my own ideas in this modern confused situation. I frankly admit that human thought alone cannot give one an understanding of it. This present century seems to have belied all the prophecies. It seems to have broken all the rules. If there is advance, well, why are things as they are? Why have they gone wrong? All our scientific notions seem to be turned topsy-turvy. Why are we as we are? That's the question. But no, I say this isn't human. This is the word of God. Now that is the claim that is made by all these men who appear in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Ezekiel was just a man like all those other Israelites in captivity. And he was sitting down by their side by the waters of Babylon as disconsolate and as hopeless as they were when suddenly he tells us he was given a vision. What he writes isn't the result of his cogitation and meditation and thought and analysis. Not at all. He says, I did nothing. It came to me. It's something he received. God began to speak to him. We needn't go in detail into how exactly he did it tonight. But God can speak without audible words. He can speak to the spirit. He can impress truth on the mind. And this man was spoken to by God. And he gave his message to his fellow countrymen. Now, they all claim what he claims here. The burden of the Lord, they say. The word of the Lord came to me. And, of course, this is the whole claim which the Bible makes for itself everywhere. Now, some of these men, they not only tell us that it isn't their own thought and their own idea. Some of them are quite honest enough and frank enough to tell us this. That when God did speak to them and give them their message, they themselves decided that they wouldn't speak it. They knew it was going to be unpopular. Jeremiah tells us that very honestly. He says, if I say that, I know exactly what will happen to me. I'll be hounded out of the country. They'll throw me into prison. And they did that sort of thing to them. And he didn't want to be unpopular. He didn't want to speak. Oh, how nice it is to be praised by everybody and to say the thing that men likes us to say to him. How nice to be told by the newspaper always how wonderful we are and so on. How different from being told that we are fools, that we are knaves, that we are madmen in our falling away from God. So they said, I'm not going to speak it. It isn't their word, it's God's word. And the New Testament, you know, says exactly the same thing. The Lord Jesus Christ said, The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that sent me, he giveth the words. The works that I do, I do not of myself. The Father that sent me, he doeth the works. Even he, the Son of God, says, He's but a messenger, a voice. And you've got explicit statements. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. This word claims that it's breathed in by God. 
Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, says the Apostle Peter. No prophecy of the scripture, he says, is of any private interpretation, by which he means this. That all these prophetic messages are not, as I say, the excogitations of a man's mind, not something that man spins out. No word of prophecy is of any private interpretation. It isn't a man's insight. It isn't his understanding into history or philosophy. No, no. Holy men of God spake as they were moved, inspired, carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit. Now that is something, of course, which is obviously quite basic in our whole position. My message to you tonight, my challenge to you is this, that in your modern confusion, whether personal or general, you are being addressed by these two schools of thought. Here is this which claims to be from God, there is all else which is but from men, whatever it may be said. There is no difference, you see, ultimately between those philosophies. You look at your newspaper front page, I say again, half of it is devoted to the wedding, half of it is devoted to the two men from Russia. And I don't care which you say is the thing, they're all men, it's all human. Now here is something which is absolutely different. The Bible starts on this supposition that man as he is cannot attain unto truth. Now this is a very drastic statement, I'm well aware of it, but it is the first statement of the scripture. Man as he is in his sin, in his misery, and in his shame cannot arrive at the truth about himself, his need, his way of deliverance. He cannot. Now, that is something which I suggest to you the modern world is proving. The world has been trying to solve its problems now for a very long time. And is anyone foolish enough to suggest that it's any nearer to solving it tonight than it's ever been? The confusion is greater than ever. What's it mean? Well, I say the world itself is proving this fundamental postulate that man in and of himself cannot arrive at truth concerning his greatest needs. The Bible puts that in many ways. It says, can a man by searching find out God? It puts it positively by saying, the world by wisdom knew not God. That is man's essential problem. So that the first thing we have to realize is this, that we are entirely dependent upon the revelation of God. Now the Bible tells you that at the very beginning. You either come to this, prepare to accept it, or else you don't. I see no other alternative. It's one or the other. You either belong to the people who say, God has spoken, and I listen, and I believe. Or else you say, no, then I don't agree with this. I'll accept this and reject that. And already you've denied revelation. You see how basic this is, how fundamental. Man in his helplessness is shut up to revelation. 
The Lord Jesus Christ said, Unless ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. He said to a learned man called Nicodemus, You must be born again. You don't just stand where you are and say, I've got so far, then go on tiptoes and being given a little help, get into the kingdom. Not at all. You've got to go right down. That means you confess your complete failure. You wait upon revelation. Like Ezekiel sitting by the waters of Babylon with the others in captivity, the word comes. Now that is the whole message of the Bible. That man himself cannot aspire unto God and unto salvation. But that God in his infinite grace and mercy gives it, reveals it. The word of the Lord came. I mustn't keep you tonight with proofs of this. But surely the moment you begin to think of it you can see how inevitable this is. The very greatness of God makes it quite impossible for men by his own efforts ever to arrive at God. Can you think of pure, absolute spirit? For God is spirit. Can you think of a person who is omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent? It's impossible. The very greatness of God makes it quite impossible for us to grasp him. And yet men in his folly today says, I will understand God. He puts God on the bench, as it were, and proceeds to dissect him, that he may encompass God with his mind. God is in his hands. How monstrous it is. The very greatness of God precludes the possibility. Can you think of utter absolute holiness? Can you look into the sun and go on doing so without being blinded? Well, how can men look into the face of God? Eternal, absolute light, endless, everlasting holiness. Who is man that he can rise and stand and look God in the face? My dear friends, the thing by definition is a complete and an utter impossibility. Man will never find God. I again quote you what Paul said to the Corinthians. The world by wisdom knew not God. There has never been a man in this world who by his own efforts has arrived at God. Your greatest philosophers have all tried and have all failed equally and they're failing as miserably today. Man, because of the very greatness of God, he shut up the revelation. If God doesn't speak, we know nothing. And then when you add to that man's nature in sin, man's condition in sin, you see how utterly impossible it is. For none of our faculties have escaped the fall. When man fell, his every faculty fell. Man's mind has fallen. His will has fallen, his heart has fallen, everything in men has fallen. Our brains get tired, our minds begin to show fatigue. We can follow an argument so far then we suddenly fail. 
We need training, we get it. We still can't follow. If we've had training, cannot, how can the other person who hasn't? How can such a person possibly do it? No, no. The whole state and condition of men, as well as the greatness of God, makes it an utter and an absolute impossibility. The Bible starts by telling us all that. It says, look here, in your need, in your misery, in your helplessness, listen. Listen to the voice of God. That is to accept our utter dependence upon revelation. This book claims to be a revelation of God and his eternal mind. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. It is always a contemporary revelation. So that this argument about the Bible, because it's an old book being out of date and irrelevant, uh, falls in exactly the same way. Why is this message always contemporary and always relevant? Well, for this good reason. Take your Bible itself and read through it, and this is what will strike you at once. That the Bible seems to go on saying the same thing always. It starts in the very beginning of Genesis. It says certain things. God made man. God spoke to him. Man disobeyed, got into misery. And there he was, helpless. God came and spoke to him. There it is at the beginning. Well, then go on to the time of the flood. Same thing again. Hundreds of years have passed, but the same message. Time of Abram, same again. With all these kings and prophets, same thing. Come to the New Testament, exactly the same thing. It's an astounding booklet. It's a long book. It was written at different periods by different men who didn't know one another, had no connection with one another, and yet they're all saying exactly the same thing. Why is that? Well, the answer is clear, isn't it? Because it's always God who's speaking, and God doesn't change. We talk about the changes in the world and the changes in men. I'll deal with that in a moment. But before you see you come to consider this, you start with this. If this is a message from God, God speaking to Abel, God speaking to Adam before that, God speaking to Noah, God speaking to Abram, God speaking to David, God speaking to the prophets, and if God is everlastingly the same, if God is the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, and if God cannot change, well then I would expect God's message to be always the same, and it is the same. But the fact of the matter is also that man doesn't change either. So here's another good reason why the message shouldn't change. Go through those illustrations I've just been giving you. Don't you see the same thing? Adam exercised his own will instead of obeying God's. That's the very thing we're all in our folly still doing. Cain murdered his brother. Men are still murdering one another in various ways. David fell into grievous sin and adultery. Mm. The newspapers are still full of it. So why should the message change? God doesn't change. Man doesn't change. The situation is still the same. I read of the children of Israel in the captivity of Babylon, I see the modern world. I see no difference. It's the different country. It's only the form. The situation is identical. 
God the same, man the same, in sin, the same message therefore. And here it is, it's always contemporary. For its message, you see, comes to this. That the one thing that matters for us all is our relationship to God. And it doesn't matter whether you're alive now or whether you lived a thousand years ago or two thousand or six thousand. It's God and yourself and the relationship between you that really matter. So it comes to pass, you see, that this section which I read to you just now from verse 16 to the end of this chapter is a perfect statement of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's all here. You can take almost any paragraph you like in the Bible and you'll find the whole message there. What is it? What is the message? Well, it's this. What is this revelation? Well, it's always the whole message, the whole statement. It's first and foremost the truth about God himself. That's what you don't find, you see, in these other vices. They don't tell you about him. They're interested in other things, human qualities, human calculations, human interests. Stop a minute, says the Bible. God, the word of the Lord came. And I say again that you and I know nothing about God apart from what we know in this book. You can say, of course, I don't think God should do this. And I don't understand a God who does that. All right, say it all. But you know you know nothing about God, neither do I, apart from what you have in this book. On what you base your knowledge of God? What right have you to put down your definitions of God? Do you know him? Have you spoken to him? Have you heard his voice? Have you felt his presence? Have you seen him? Of course you haven't. We know nothing about God except what he has graciously been pleased to reveal and to manifest himself to us. And he has done so. It's plain and clear. He is a holy God. Read your Ten Commandments and there you'll have some inkling of God. He's the maker and the creator of the world. He's the judge eternal. He is the one who sits upon the whole universe and before whom we all stand. God. Listen to the word of God, my dear friend. Stop your ears to all these other vices. All this raucous laughter, all this jocularity, and all this pretense that all is marvelous and wonderful and thrilling and exciting. Sat it out, I say. And begin to listen to what God tells you about himself. God in his eternal glory. Then he tells you about God creating the world and creating man. You must start with these things. And then he goes on to tell you the truth about man himself. Oh, that's the tragedy of this folly of listening to these other voices. They don't tell us the truth about ourselves. They don't tell us the truth about man. Read your newspapers and what you think man is. Well, I suggest to you the only conclusion you can come to is that man is an animal. And that the most important thing for man is food and drink and sex. 
The world is full of sex. And the interest and the excitement. Sex! Is man but an animal? Is he a creature of the jungle? Is that all? That's the impression given. A mass of complexes. A kind of beast, I say, that doesn't know what to do with himself. Oh, my dear friend, begin to listen to the word of God that'll tell you the truth about yourself. Man was never meant to be as he is. That was never meant to be life that you see depicted there. That isn't life. That's hell. That's what man is made of life. It's only here you'll realize the greatness and the glory of man. His true nature, what he was meant for, what his life was designed for, what he was intended to be and to do. Oh, I plead with you, listen to the truth about yourself as you find it here. It's all here. And likewise, you'll find the truth about history. You'll find the truth about eternity. You'll find it all. But very especially, this is the thing that this paragraph will make us concentrate on. As in God's good time and in God's will, we come to listen to it and to deal with it in detail. It will tell us very especially about this. Why is man as he is? Now let me give you a foretaste. Listen to how it's put. Son of man. This was the first word. Son of man, listen. When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. That's why things are as they are. As if God had said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you are sitting with your contemporaries, with your fellow countrymen, by the waters of Babylon, and you're all miserable and unhappy. But men, the question is, why are you here instead of being there? And the answer is quite plain. It's your own folly. You polluted your own land. You defiled it. You rebelled against God and his way. You've brought this upon yourselves. It's you who are the cause, not your circumstances, not anything else. You've done it yourself. It makes that very plain and clear to us. And then it tells us how God hates that and condemns it. Oh yes, it's all here. We'll have to expound it. God hates that sort of thing, and he hates it to this extent that he punishes it. He does condemn it. He tells them here that he it was through the Chaldeans who flung them out of their own land and threw them out amongst the nation. You can't trifle with God, and you can't escape him. And God punishes sin. He's done it from the very beginning. As he threw Adam out of the Garden of Eden, he threw his own people out of the land of Israel. But oh, thank God it doesn't stop there. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, and after it had told them about God and about themselves and why they were as they were and why God had punished them, it goes on to tell them that in spite of it, God is going to deliver them, not because they deserved it, but for his own glory's sake. 
for his own namesake. The word of the Lord came. Oh, that's the glory of this book. It keeps on saying that. You and I, had we been in the position of God, we would have dismissed these children of Israel repeatedly and shot them out of our sight. But God comes down to them and speaks to them. And there's the whole message of the gospel. When the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his own Son, the Word of God himself, the expression of God's love, God's final word to men in the person of his only Son. He came and he spoke and he did. And this bread and wine speak. It's all speaking the same thing. God's way of deliverance for us in spite of ourselves. And finally, God's word to us in the light of all this, which is a word that calls us to repent, to think again. Oh, said God to Ezekiel, go and tell those people, when they see it, they'll hate themselves and their sins. They'll abominate themselves. Call them to repentance. And the turning back to me. That's its message. It's a full message. And I finally want to say this therefore. It is a message which, which must be accepted as it is and as a whole. That is absolutely essential. This message all hangs together. You can't pick out parts of it and say, oh, I'll take that and leave out the rest. You cannot. It's impossible. This, as I've started by saying, is a revelation from God. It isn't what men have arrived at. It isn't what men have discovered. It's what God has revealed concerning himself. If I accept it as revelation, well, to be consistent, to be logical, I must accept it all. But you say, I don't like that doctrine of sin. I'm not asking you what you like. I'm asking you to believe what God has said. And take it from me, my friend. If you don't start by accepting what the Bible tells you about the holiness of God, you'll never know his love. Never. The false prophets, you see, said to Israel, Oh, they said it's all right. God is love. Don't you take this too seriously. Carry on. God's love. But they found that God was just also, and that's why they were carried away to Babylon. God is love. Yes, but God is holy. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You must take the whole message. You say, I don't like that message about sin. It seems to me to be rather degrading to ask a man to admit that he's a miserable, vile sinner. I don't believe that sort of stuff. I say to you again that it's not a question of what you like. When you really get to know yourself, you'll know it's true. But even until you do get to know it, believe it because it's God's diagnosis of you. It's what God has revealed. Take it from me. No man has ever known Christ as his Savior until he has known his need of a Savior. 
That was the whole trouble with the Pharisees. They didn't like to think they were sinners, and they didn't see the need of his saviorhood, and they rejected him. It's the man who sees his need who thanks God for the salvation. You can't pick and choose in this salvation. It's all here. It's an entire message, and every single part must be taken. If you don't, what you think is gospel is something else. There are people who hate the doctrine of the blood of Christ. They say, I don't like it. This insistence upon the blood. Very well, I say. If you don't like it, I can't help it. But you'll never go to heaven without it. There is only one way of entering into the holiest of all. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That wasn't an idea concocted by these prophets or by any priests. It was the revelation of God. God called Moses up onto the mountain and said, Moses, listen, I want to give you a pattern of a temple. Tabernacle offerings tells him all about the animals, which to take and which to reject. How to put their hands on the head of the animal. How to slay him. How to burn the carcass. How to offer the blood. It's God who's told him. And it's always God. And it must all be taken together. And as a whole. Shall I therefore end by putting it to you in this way? And this is the message of the gospel to any troubled, unhappy and miserable soul in this congregation. You are like Ezekiel. You were sitting in shame and in sorrow. You had your ideas about life and about what you could do. You said you'd got a strong will and that you could play with sin, but you've discovered that it was sin that was playing with you. And you've lost your character, you've lost your reputation. You feel you've discovered at last that you can't master things. You are down and you're in shame, sitting by the waters of Babylon. My dear friend, listen. Can't you hear it? Can't you hear the word of God speaking to you and telling you that in spite of all your folly and all your arrogance and all your shame and all you've brought upon yourself, for his own namesake, God sent his son into the world to die for you and for your sins. He comes to you where you are, sitting by the waters of Babylon, just where you are, in the midst of your failure, in the midst of your degradation. He comes to you there. He tells you why you're there. And he tells you how he can lift you out of it and take you back into himself. Cleanse you, wash you, fill you with his spirit, give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, and shower his mighty blessings upon you. Have you heard him? Has the word of God in Jesus Christ come to you? That is what he's saying. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen. Amen.